Well, we arrive at our final sermon in the Mark's Gospel series. It really has been a joy and privilege for me to be able to teach through this wonderful book of the Bible and get a better understanding of the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, with this being our last week in the Gospel of Mark and next week being Pentecost, our new series will start in two weeks' time and we'll be considering a 10-part series through the letter of 1 Timothy. We'll be seeing how the Gospel impacted the local church setting. So mark it down in your diaries, two weeks' time, Sunday the 30th of May, a brand new series in the letter of 1 Timothy. For now and for one final time in this series, let us head to the book of Mark having your Bibles open at chapter 16. Now, for the last few weeks, we have been considering the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. And last week, we saw that when Jesus cried out, it is finished, he had given his life as the eternal atoning sacrifice for our sin. Now, having been confirmed dead on the cross, Joseph of Arimathea lays the body of Jesus in an empty tomb. Jesus was indeed dead and buried. Crucially, we saw how nobody prepared for the resurrection. Sorrow had overcome the followers of Jesus and it seems all their hope was gone. Today in this final sermon, we come to the crescendo of the ministry of Jesus. He didn't stay dead. Instead, the message rang out across the nations that he is alive. As we consider the text, I want you to keep two things in mind. Without the resurrection, there would be no gospel. Without the resurrection, we would resign ourselves to being dead and buried within our own sin. You see, the resurrection changes everything. It is the rally cry to look up and see that sin and death has been defeated. And through Jesus, you don't have to be dead in your sin. You can be alive in the new life that is provided by our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So we're going to go through the passage together and we're going to learn this wonderful truth that he is indeed alive. So let's head to Mark chapter 16 and from verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. We pick up chapter 16 very early on Sunday morning. The women that were with Jesus at the crucifixion and his burial now seek to return to the tomb so they can complete the anointing process. In John 20, we are told that while the women are heading to the tomb, the disciples are locked away in the upper room because they are in fear. For the Jews were hunting down supporters of Jesus and the disciples, having little hope, hid from the danger. Now, it may seem overly harsh to keep pointing out that nobody was expecting the resurrection, but Jesus had already prepared them to expect a resurrection. Mark 8, 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Jesus had told them exactly what would happen. And we're now three days later, the very day that Jesus declared he would rise. And where are the disciples? They're locked in an upper room because of their fear. And what were the women doing? They were preparing and finalising the burial process. It seems the followers of Jesus had not grasped the power, might and truth of the words of Jesus, that he was going to rise from the dead and they should expect it. Verse 3. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. The stone had been rolled into place 
by Joseph of Arimathea. This was a large stone and had been rolled into a deep groove in front of the tomb and it would have blocked the entrance to the tomb. Now during this time, the Pharisees and the chief priests were concerned that the followers of Jesus would take the body of Jesus and therefore perpetuate these claims that somehow Jesus would rise from the dead. So we read in Matthew 27, these Jewish leaders went to Pilate and his response is found in Matthew 27 verses 65 and 66. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, not only was the tomb sealed with a great stone, but the stone itself had a seal on it with guards posted at the tomb entrance. You see, physically, everything had been done to secure the body of Jesus and to ensure that it remained exactly where it laid. So as the women walked to the tomb and they were looking to finish this anointing process, the discussion began. Who's going to roll away this great stone for us? This was something that the women couldn't do and it was likely going to take several individuals to get the stone out of place. But upon their arrival, it was clear that they need not worry for the stone had been rolled back. And I really like the last few words of verse four. The stone was very large. Just this little extra fact we're given because you can just imagine the astonishment. This massive stone, this huge blockade had been moved. Who had done it? How was it achieved? The woman would not have known what we already know because of Matthew 28 and verse two. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now for a moment, I want you to see the beauty of the word of God here. Upon the death of Jesus, the curtain at the temple was torn in two. There was no longer a block between the people and God. In fact, the people could now access the presence of God. And through Jesus, you could enjoy the glory of your creator God. Now look at the resurrection scene. Another man-made blockade has been moved, giving access to Jesus. You see, the power of Jesus is such that you cannot box him in and no man-made thing can contain him. The presence of God burst out of the temple, tearing the temple court and temple curtain in two. Now Jesus and his glory burst out from the tomb. And who was there to care about a large stone? Because the power of Jesus would break anything in his way. Verse five. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. The women enter the tomb, and I would imagine with much trepidation. Mark doesn't specifically state here that this young man was an angel. However, considering the white robe and verses later in Mark 16, we can presume that it is. And it's recorded that the women were alarmed at the sight of this young man. Now, some translations would word it that they were affrighted, which means to be filled with fear and panic. And who wouldn't be? You expect a dead body wrapped in linen and instead you see a white robed young man sitting off to the side in the tomb. Yet is it not wonderful that the first words from this angels were, do not be alarmed. You see, the first task of this angel was to be a messenger, a messenger of comfort and mercy. There was no judgment of their fear, no rebuke in the tone. 
These were comforting words. There is no need to fear, for the news I bring you will bring you joy. Yes, Jesus, the one who was crucified, should be here in this tomb, but he's not here. He has risen. And just look at this situation for a moment. Jesus was crucified. He was dead. He was buried. But he is alive. This news is so unbelievable that the angel even points to where Jesus had been laid. And to point to an empty tomb was not to chastise any unbelief or shock, but to strengthen the faith in the message. Jesus was crucified. He was dead. He was buried. But he is alive. Verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The angel gave these women, who were still in shock, a very specific task. They were to go to the hiding disciples and tell them the message. Jesus was crucified, he was dead, he was buried, but he is now alive. And more than that, Jesus was planning to meet them in Galilee just as he promised. I think it's particularly interesting that Peter is mentioned by name. Was it simply he was deemed the leader of the disciples? Or was this news of Jesus being alive specifically poignant for him? For in Peter, there was much to repent and seek forgiveness for. Jesus being alive would bring that opportunity of restoration for Peter. He was the one who had denied Jesus three times. And we know at the end of John's gospel, the resurrected Lord Jesus brought full restoration to him. So it was Peter that was mentioned by name. Now notice the women fled the tomb. They didn't walk out slowly, they ran. They were both filled with fear and amazement. The information was almost too wonderful to bear. On their journey to the disciples, we're told that they said nothing to anyone. There's a couple of ways we could take this. Firstly, they might have not discussed it amongst themselves. There was silence on the journey. Or maybe as they journeyed, they met different individuals on the way from the tomb to the disciples, but they didn't talk to them. Either way, what is clear is that these women obeyed the angels and went to the disciples with the news. Jesus was crucified. He was dead. He was buried. But he's now alive. Now, before we continue in our passage, some of your Bibles will note that the remaining verses of Mark's gospel were not in the earliest manuscripts. In fact, still, some of the Bibles won't even quote, won't even include the following verses. Now, the two main reasons are for manuscripts in AD 325 and AD 340 didn't have these verses included in them. So that was one of the first main reasons. Why do these manuscripts, why these early manuscripts not include these verses? And further to this, the language is very different in these verses. In fact, grammatically, it's quite clunky and it moves at an extreme pace, almost just, just stating facts without any form of story. And so some manuscripts removed these final verses. However, we should note that some early Christian writers did indeed quote from these verses. In fact, manuscripts in AD 100 and AD 200 include quotes from the following verses. So it seems there's no real concrete evidence as to why manuscripts 100 years later didn't include these verses. However, A.T. Robertson does give a bit of an explanation. It is difficult to believe that Mark ended his gospel with verse 8. That is unless he was interrupted. 
So whether Mark wrote his entire gospel account in one go, or whether he was interrupted and later added some verses, or whether the disciples added some explanatory verses at the end, we don't know. But rather than see the end of Mark's gospel today at verse 8, we're going to continue into these final verses, looking at a collection of encounters with Jesus. Why? Well, simply we trust the word of God. We trust that it's accurate, truthful and entirely as the Lord wished. We have these verses because the Lord wishes for us to have these verses. This is the word of God, the word of God that we trust. And so we head into verse 9 and the first of three recorded encounters with the risen Lord Jesus with confidence in our hearts and minds. Verse 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. We're first presented with Mary's dramatic encounter with Jesus that we read about in John 20. After seeing Jesus, she was to go and tell the disciples what had happened. She was to be a witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Incredibly, as she takes this phenomenal news to the disciples, to these broken-hearted disciples, they refuse to believe Mary. In fact, Luke records in Luke 24, 11, but these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. The disciples foolishly dismissed not only the words of Mary, but the promise of Jesus that he would indeed rise from the dead. In comparison to this might and power of the Lord Jesus, we have the hardened hearted disciples. We then read of another encounter in verse 12. After these things, he appeared in another form of two of them as they were walking into the country and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe him. This encounter refers to the stranger on the road to Emmaus that we read about in Luke 24. Jesus appears to two of his disciples. At the start of their journey, they don't recognise Jesus, but by the end of the journey, by the end of spending time with Jesus, they recognise him as the risen Lord himself. So they take this news to the rest of the disciples, but the rest of the disciples remain hardened to this truth. They once again do not believe the story being told. Are they simply blinded to the truth? Or maybe they are fearful because they deserted Jesus so they can't bring themselves to believe the truth. Clearly, Jesus was going to have to do something to deal with their hardened hearts. And we read about that encounter in verse 14. Afterwards, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardened hearts because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. We know for a long time that the disciples have struggled with the sin of unbelief. Mark 9.19 says, And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? It was time for Jesus to deal with their unbelief and their hardness of heart. John 20 verse 19 tells us a bit more detail about the moment of when Jesus appeared to them. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said to them, Peace be with you. The trembling disciples finally believed as Jesus stood before them. 
Sure, we know that Thomas needed a little extra help to deal with his doubts, but in the end, the disciples finally realised the truth of the three women in verse 8. Jesus was crucified, he was dead, he was buried, but he is now alive. And we can take much comfort from these three encounters. Jesus is patient with us. He helps us in our doubts. He provides opportunities for our faith to be strengthened in him. Even when our doubts seem insurmountable, Jesus brings truth into our lives. For just as the disciples are presented the truth, so we are. And when we truly have faith in Jesus, it becomes an undeniable reality that Jesus indeed rose from the dead. Verse 15. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptised will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. When their faith was finally established in Jesus, the Lord commissioned them to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. The word proclaim means to officially and publicly announce. They were to go to the very ends of the earth and officially and publicly declare that Jesus had been crucified for the sake of mankind and that the message was now the resurrected Lord Jesus brings salvation to the believer in Christ. You see, there's no gospel account without the resurrection. It is the resurrection that shows Jesus' power to deal with sin and death. It shows that Jesus truly is the eternal atoning sacrifice. It shows that as we place our faith in Jesus, we then have access to the creator himself. And so the disciples were to go out and tell and publicly declare this truth. Jesus was crucified, was dead, was buried, and he is now alive. Yet in this great commission, there is even more wonderful truth. The gospel is for all, in every part of the world, without distinction. The gospel is for every race, every country, every nation, every person. This is the global mission task of every believer, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ publicly and officially. And when the disciples and when we take this great commission seriously, we're going to see a wonderful truth. There will be people who will believe, who will be baptised, and who will wonderfully be saved from their sin. Yet there's also a horrible reality. There'll be some that reject the message of this truth, and sadly, they'll be condemned for their sin for eternity. Therefore, the command of Jesus was really important, for the Lord doesn't wish anyone to be condemned. There's an urgency in this great commission to get the message of the risen Lord Jesus Christ out into the very ends of the world so that everyone has the opportunity not to be condemned, but to have life through Jesus. We continue in verse 17. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They'll speak in new tongues. They'll pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. Now, this wasn't a challenge set by Jesus to go and do dangerous things. Instead, it was a promise of his protection. The signs were for those who believe, not to bring belief. In other words, the signs were for the newly formed church to know that the Lord was with them, protecting them as they fulfilled this global mission task. Now, lots of questions come up from this verse, and I don't necessarily have time to go into them today. The questions are, you know, are these signs just for the disciples or for the church? Will these signs last? Will they never cease or will they cease? Will they be sporadic or will they be normative? 
The truth is, none of these questions can really be answered from this passage. But what we do know is the Lord would bless these disciples with signs to show that he is with them, that the task has a divine seal, that this would be no human task, but one that carried divine approval. They could go out and do their mission task of sharing the gospel, obeying the Great Commission, knowing that Jesus was protecting them, knowing that Jesus was behind them, knowing that this was a divine will and plan of God. So how do we finish off Mark's gospel? How do we finish chapter 16? Well, we head into verse 19. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. After Jesus had appeared to many, he ascended into heaven. This was to ensure that the faith of each believer was not just in the physical Lord Jesus, in the person of Jesus, but in the spirit of God. That this wasn't just about what they could see, but what they could know through faith in Jesus. Jesus had to go so that he might prepare a place, John 14, 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And he said all of this to let the believers know that there was a place for them in eternity. He also had to ascend because he had to intercede for us, Romans 8, 34, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You see, Jesus is different than any man, different even from angelic beings. He is the Son of God. The throne is his to occupy, and so he ascends and takes the rightful place at the right-hand side of the Father, and he intercedes for us. He brings us into communion with the Father. He brings forgiveness so that we can come close to the Father. He brings us access to the Father. As the curtain blocked access, as the stone blocked access, Jesus now opens access to the Heavenly Father so that we can be in right relationship. Now, what of the disciples? If that's what Jesus was doing as he ascended to heaven, what were the disciples doing? Well, there was no going back. They had to go forward. They went and obeyed. They preached the gospel, not just in their hometowns, but we read everywhere. The disciples were ignited by the same fire. They knew the truth. They knew the way. They knew the life. And it was time for the world to hear all about Jesus, the King, the great high priest, the eternal sacrifice, the Messiah, the Son of God. You see, the resurrection changed everything. Now, what do we do? We've come to the end of Mark's gospel. We've had over 50 sermons. We've gone through every verse. We've brought knowledge and understanding to the words of God and we've applied them to our lives. So it seems fitting that we finish our series with three very simple but clear application points. And here's the first. The resurrection means victory. The resurrection means victory. Do you know, Christians have an awful habit of getting bogged down in the nonsense of this world. We spend time trying to fit in, trying to do the things of this world, trying to find happiness, trying to achieve, trying to be right that we forget the one very simple but unbelievable, profound truth. Jesus is victorious. That is where our joy and happiness should be placed. That is where our lives should point to. That is where our minds should focus. Jesus defeated sin and death. And because of this, we can now live and more than that, draw close to our creator God. 
So what on earth are we doing trying to fit in or find something on this earth or even being high and mighty in this world? You have something far better. You have the victory through Jesus. John Piper phrased it this way. The best news of the Christian gospel is that the supremely glorious creator of the universe has acted in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection to remove every obstacle between us and himself so that we may find everlasting joy in seeing and savouring his infinite beauty. So take the victory we see in the resurrection. See it, savour it and know the infinite beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing in this world compares, so don't even bother looking for it. Savour the victory in Jesus. You don't need anything in this world. You don't need to go to this world for joy, happiness, contentment. You find it in the victory of Jesus because he defeats sin and death. And in his name, we can live life to the full. The second application I want to bring to you is this. Don't be stubborn. Don't be stubborn. The disciples were hard-hearted, foolish and stubborn. They had the truth told to them and shown them and they refused to believe it. Yet when Jesus stood amongst them, when they saw with their eyes, their faith welled up inside of them to declare that the Lord Jesus truly is alive. But to start with, they were stubborn, hard-hearted and foolish. Now over the years, I have heard and met many individuals that are exactly like the disciples here. They've heard the gospel. They've maybe even been along to church for several months or years, but yet they still refuse to believe the truth. They don't have an alternative. They don't have another explanation. They don't have another position. They just simply don't believe. Well, here's my message to those who are listening today who are in the same position of stubbornness, of hard-heartedness, of foolishness, of just simply saying, it's not really for me. Stop being stubborn. On offer is a risen Lord Jesus Christ who loves you, who endured death for you, who defeated sin for you, who sits at the right hand side of God to intercede for you, who is preparing an eternal home for you. You can't respond in indifference. Don't respond in a hard heart. Instead, Acts 2.38 says, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent from your sins, humble yourself before Jesus and you will be forgiven. More than that, you'll be made new and you'll be called child of God. The resurrection changes everything. Don't let your stubbornness blind you from Jesus. He was clear, believe and be saved or reject and be condemned. That is the truth that you now face. You choose to believe or reject, you choose life or death. You choose eternal security with Jesus or condemnation for your sin in hell. Stop being indifferent. Stop being stubborn. Recognize the choice before you and we pray that you would indeed come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. But third and finally, I want to say this. Don't be idle. Don't be idle. The Great Commission was not a suggestion to the disciples. It was a command. Ironside states, interest in missions is not an elective in God's university of grace. It is something that every disciple is expected to major in. Do you see that? Jesus didn't command the skilled evangelists among the disciples. He commanded them all. 
He didn't earmark some as pastors, others as businessmen to pay for mission, or even some to be great prayer warriors to pray for the mission. He commissioned and he commanded for them all to major in the global task of proclaiming Jesus Christ. I wonder why we've lost this simple fact in modern Christianity. A lack of interest in the global task, the global great commission, is disobedience. God commanded that the gospel would go to the very ends of the earth so that everyone would have an opportunity to know his love and to find security in Jesus Christ. So what on earth are we doing being indifferent or not having an interest in that news? Because it was the news that someone shared with us. It's the news that sets us free. It's the news that God, by his grace, has given us through Jesus Christ. So why on earth are we not taking it to anybody else? There was a great commission and it was for every single disciple. There is no such thing in the Christian world as indifference or lack of interest to global missions. We must take the gospel to the ends of the earth because that is the command of Jesus. So here it is in simple language. Don't be idle. Take the gospel and give it out. Now, how did we finish, or sorry, how did we begin 18 months ago and 50 sermons ago? Well, we started with Mark 1.1. In fact, it was a bit of a joke. I couldn't even get off Mark 1.1 for a few weeks. This is what it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, now we know that. We've spent 18 months knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ, 18 months knowing that he's the Son of God, 18 months seeing salvation through his name. How do we end this series? Mark 16, 15, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. The message is clear, don't be idle. Get up and go out. No more excuses, no more ifs and buts, no more self-focus, no more protection of a comfortable life, no more building treasures on this earth. Get up, go out, be in obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ, proclaim what you've been taught, what you now know, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came, lived, died, and rose so that we might live. And I'm going to say that again because I need you to understand this. I need you to understand what obedience to Jesus Christ means. We are to get up, go out, be in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, proclaim what he has taught, what you now know that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came, lived, died and rose so that we might live. This is the Great Commission. This is what Mark's Gospel is all about. The Gospel of Jesus spread to the entire world. Now, I want to close a little differently than I usually do. In a few moments, we'll finish the series by hearing that wonderful message of the gospel sung to us. For now, let me say this. For me, I've been truly overwhelmed by this study in Mark's gospel. I want to say that I believe in the Son, Jesus Christ. I believe in the risen one. I believe I overcome by the power of his blood and I'm alive because he lives. If you can't say that with deep joy and conviction, I want you to listen to this song. I want you to hear the word sung. And I beg of you one last time in this series, give your life to Jesus.